Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Breast Cancer and Younger Women. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the Young Survival Coalition, and we're delighted to be collaborating with them on this important call. Um, this um, program um, actually uh, is, uh, we have a number of other groups that collaborate with us, um, other breast cancer organizations as well as, um, as cancer organizations. And because of that collaboration and all of you, your interest in this topic, which is such an important one, um, we have over 450 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, and we have international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom, so you really from all over the world. It's really a credit to you that you've chosen to spend this call, this time with us. Today's program is supported by Genomic Health, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. And we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Of Lynn Henry. Dr. Henry is Associate Professor of Internal Medicine, University of Utah, Leader Women's Cancer Center, Huntsman Cancer Institute. Dr. Henry is going to be addressing an overview of breast cancer in younger women, unique issues for younger women, precision medicine and sequencing treatment, and genetic testing, including testing for BRCA mutations. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Henry. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. As mentioned, I'm a medical oncologist at the Huntsman Cancer Institute at the University of Utah, where I treat women and men of all ages who are diagnosed with breast cancer. I will be providing an overview about breast cancer in young women and then discussing both precision medicine and genetic testing. While breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in women, only about 10% of breast cancers are diagnosed in women under the age of 45, and fewer than 5% are diagnosed in women under the age of 40. Although breast cancer uncommonly affects young women, it has a significant impact on, a women at a, on, on women at a key time in their lives. This is a time when patients are starting and establishing their careers, getting married, starting families. Therefore, the diagnosis itself, as well as the treatment, can negatively impact affected women in multiple ways. There are physical, psychological, emotional, and social effects. From a physical perspective, young women with breast cancer face changes related to breast surgery, including lumpectomy, mastectomy, and reconstruction that require time for recovery, can cause changes in how they perceive their bodies, and can impact future ability to breastfeed. Chemotherapy and other medications can cause menopausal symptoms, such as hot flashes and vaginal dryness, can cause sexual dysfunction and difficulty with intimacy, can reduce or abolish fertility, and long-term can lead to increased risk of osteoporosis, second cancers, heart disease, and other conditions. Also, during chemotherapy treatment, many women are concerned about both an increased risk of getting sick themselves from their children, as well as causing harm to their families by being around them after receiving the chemotherapy treatments. Other issues that affect young women with breast cancer, including difficulties with anxiety and depression, facing cancer treatment while also juggling multiple responsibilities, including caring for her family and care taking care of other obligations such as work, 
It can also be a challenge to know how best to talk with children about breast cancer and what the future holds. Finally, there can be concerns about finances, how to pay for treatment, how the diagnosis will impact her job and her future career, and whether it will be more difficult to get health insurance in the future. Many of these issues will be addressed in more detail by subsequent speakers on this call. Switching gears a bit, once someone is diagnosed with breast cancer, there are two different kinds of genetic testing that can be performed that may be mentioned by an oncologist. The first is often called genomic testing or next generation sequencing. In this type of testing, the tumor itself is tested for changes that drive or cause the cancer to grow. Often this type of testing is only done in the setting of metastatic or stage four cancer, although sometimes it is done in earlier stages of disease as well. Precision medicine is definitely a buzzword we see in the medical literature all the time now, and it's sometimes seen in the lay press as well. Basically, it means that the goal is to treat a patient with the drug most likely to work against her cancer and cause the fewest side effects. Now, to most people, this may seem like a very obvious thing to do. However, until recently, we actually treated most breast cancers quite similarly with a handful of anti-hormone drugs and chemotherapy drugs in different combinations and sequences independent of the specific characteristics of the tumor or without really accounting for differences between different patients. Now, however, we are able to do additional testing on tumors, including testing for common things like estrogen receptor HER2, as well as less common things such as mutations or small changes in a gene, too few or too many copies of a gene, and fusions between two different genes that really shouldn't be next to each other. Many of these changes can affect how well a cancer can grow, so in a few situations, we now have drugs that specifically target the change and by doing so can block the cancer. In many more situations, there are drugs in development and drugs that are being tested in clinical trials that target these changes and that we hope will be helpful in the future. By sequencing tumors and identifying different drugs that might work particularly well against an individual tumor, we hope to more precisely and specifically target that cancer and therefore try to treat it more effectively. So that was the first type. The second type of testing is what most people think of as genetic testing, testing the patient for changes in DNA that she inherited from her parents that could have increased her risk for the cancer in the first place. Fewer than 10% of patients diagnosed with breast cancer actually has a mutation that can be identified in a gene associated with breast cancer. Now that percentage is higher in younger women, but still, most patients who develop breast cancer are not found to have a mutation, and therefore we really don't know why they develop breast cancer. Genetic testing, sorry, genetic counseling and testing is typically recommended for a patient who has a high likelihood of inheriting a change in her DNA that might have caused her breast cancer. According to the NCCN, which is a large group of cancer providers in the United States, young women, those who are diagnosed with breast cancer under age 50, should be referred to a genetic counselor to discuss genetic testing, regardless of whether she has any family members with breast cancer or other cancers. Genetic testing typically involves a blood sample or other sample that contains DNA, such as a cheek swab, and sending it for testing, which can take up to a few weeks. Until a few years ago, patients were generally only tested for changes in a few key genes, and the ones most people have heard of are BRCA1 and BRCA2. These are the genes most commonly associated with developing breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and a woman with a mutation in one of these genes has about a 50 to 80% chance of developing breast cancer in her lifetime. So most, but not all, with women with one of these mutations will develop breast cancer. 
There are mutations in a few other genes that are also strongly associated with breast cancer in young women, although these are even less common than BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. More recently, we have learned about changes in many other genes that are associated with breast cancer. However, unlike BRCA mutations, where most women with the mutation will develop breast cancer, with these other genes, a lower percentage of women with mutations actually develop breast cancer, perhaps only a quarter of women. Some of these include genes called CHECK2 and PALB2. There's a whole alphabet soup associated with this. And we can now check for all these genes, including BRCA1 and BRCA2, using a single test called panel testing. Some people opt to do testing through one of the companies that advertise genetic testing in the media, such as on TV. It's important to realize that these results may be incomplete and that any findings uh, should be confirmed. And actually talking with a genetic counselor can be very valuable so that you understand the findings and know how best to use them. So how do we use genetic testing results? Overall, the testing is important because it can provide important information to help guide decision about surgery. In addition, it can provide information to family members about their risk of developing cancer in the future. And finally, there are now drugs that have been developed that seem to work particularly well in patients with certain mutations. So one day, these results may guide recommendations about cancer drug treatments as well. So that's a general overview about breast cancer in young women and genetic and genomic testing. And so now I'll turn it over to the next speaker. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Henry. That was really wonderful and a wonderful way to start the whole program. It's just a wonderful um, overview of, of young, breast cancer in young women. Our next speaker is Dr. Rachel Young. Dr. Young is Assistant Professor, Medical Oncology Division, University of Washington School of Medicine. She's also Assistant Member, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Dr. Young is going to address what informs your treatment options, new treatment opportunities, updates on clinical trials, and tools to indicate when chemotherapy is indicated. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Young. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, wonderful. I want to just thank everyone for um, inviting me to participate. It's really an honor and a privilege to be able to talk to so many women at one time. Helping women understand their breast cancer is one of the most important and rewarding parts of my job. I realize that we have a very diverse group of people on this call, and I'm going to try to be as inclusive as possible. Some of this may not be pertinent to you, but hopefully portions will be helpful in your journey. First, I'm going to talk about what informs your treatment options. Treatment options are generally dictated by the stage or the amount and spread of the cancer and by the biology or the subtype of the cancer. Generally, stage helps us understand the risk of the cancer and the biology or subtype helps us understand which treatments are indicated. Treatment can be divided into either local or into local therapy and systemic or medical therapy. Local therapy includes surgery and sometimes radiation. This is typically done for early-stage breast cancer, but occasionally is used for metastatic disease when it's causing problems. In early-stage disease, the goal of surgery and radiation is to remove the cancer we know about with the surgery and to try to kill any of the residual cancer cells that may be in the area with radiation. Medical therapy or systemic therapy can include things like chemotherapy, targeted treatments like Herceptin or Pertuzumab, and hormone therapies like tamoxifen or ovarian suppression with an aromatase inhibitor. For early-stage breast cancer, the main goal of therapy is preventative. In other words, to reduce the chance of a cancer coming back somewhere else in the body. 
For advanced or metastatic disease, the goal of medical therapy is to shrink or stabilize the cancer. Choosing specific treatments is based on the biology or the subtype of cancer. So then to talk about the tools to indicate when chemotherapy is indicated, I'm going to speak um, to early stage cancers first for this. For some subtypes of breast cancers, such as triple negative breast cancer or HER2 positive breast cancers, if they're large enough, chemotherapy is generally recommended. About 60% of breast cancers are not triple negative or HER2 positive. They're hormone receptor positive and HER2 negative or hormone sensitive cancers. For hormone sensitive cancers, an important part of treatment is hormone therapy, and this is almost universally recommended. Now, I'm going to talk more about hormone therapy in a moment. But another question is if there's additional benefit to chemotherapy with ER positive or hormone positive cancers. Some cancers are a little more sensitive to chemotherapy, such as those that are faster growing, and some are less sensitive to chemotherapy, such as those that are slower growing. There are several molecular or gene expression tests that are now um, available to help us determine whether chemotherapy is likely to reduce the risk of um, cancer recurrence. Most commonly used are a, a test called the Oncotype DX, which is a 21 gene assay, and the Mammoprint, which is a 70 gene assay. The initial studies on Oncotype DX showed that low-risk cancers didn't benefit from chemotherapy, that high-risk cancers did, and that there was a middle intermediate zone where it wasn't clear. Early on, we only had information about these tests in older women. However, in the last several years, studies have been completed that included younger and premenopausal women to, better, uh, to help us better understand who benefits from chemotherapy. Younger women haven't always been included in studies, but recognition about this issue and activism by young women like yourselves has improved participation in studies. This makes it easier for us to be able to give better information that is specific to younger women. Recently, we've had the results of several studies that very intentionally included premenopausal women that I wanted to mention here. There is a study called Taylor X, which looked at the Oncotype DX, and specifically at women who had an intermediate score, and it looked to see if chemotherapy would benefit this one, these women. In the overall study, there wasn't any benefit. However, in an unplanned analysis, it appeared as though there might be some benefit for younger women. This suggests um, uh, that there might be some benefit for women who are less than 50 who receive chemotherapy with an intermediate score. It's really important to not read too much into this, however, because there may be some other things that are resulting in this potential benefit. Specifically, it's unclear if the benefit comes from the chemotherapy itself killing the cancer or maybe because the chemotherapy helps age the ovaries and that there's potentially less estrogen around. There was another trial called MindAct which looked at the mammoprint. This was important because it included premenopausal women who had node-positive disease and it showed that this test was informative for that population as well. There are similar but different molecular tests, as Dr. Henry has already described, for metastatic disease, such as Foundation One and other tests. These can help identify aspects of the cancer that can be targeted for treatments, either chemotherapies or other targeted treatments. Brings us to the next topic, which is new treatment opportunities, and I'm gonna start with hormone therapy. 
Standard care for hormone therapy has changed significantly in the last five years. It used to be that all premenopausal women got five years of tamoxifen and that was it. However, in 2013, the ATLAS trial reported that 10 years of tamoxifen was better than five years of tamoxifen with improved survival. This included 20% of patients that were under 45. So for a time, 10 years of tamoxifen came, became really the standard for premenopausal women. Just a year later, however, in 2014, we got the long-awaited results of a, a study called Soften Text. And this was a study looking at ovarian suppression, a shot to turn off the ovaries or medical menopause with either aromatase inhibitor, tamoxifen, or tamoxifen alone. What we saw in, this, um, in these results was that uh, overall, or that ovarian suppression with aromatase inhibitor was a little bit better than ovarian suppression with tamoxifen, which was better than tamoxifen. This seemed to be most significant for women who were less than 40 and who had received chemotherapy. However, there were more side effects with the um, more significant ovarian suppression and aromatase inhibitor. Therefore, we don't make this recommendation to all patients, but really um, try to specialize it based on what a woman's risk is. Another area we've made huge strides in is something called residual disease. This is when a woman receives preoperative treatment for her cancer, but there's still little cancer left at this time of surgery. There were two trials in the last two years that have come out um, showing that there are additional treatments that we can use to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. The first was in um, uh, was a trial called CREATE-X, which was a study looking at the addition of capecitabine or an oral chemotherapy <clears throat> to reduce the risk of cancer coming back. The next was a study called Catherine that was just presented in December of last year, looking at the addition of TDM1, or um, the trade name's Cadsyla, for HER2-positive disease. This reduced the recurrence of the cancer by half. In advanced disease, several other trials have shown um, benefit and have opened the doors for us to use new agents for um, women who have advanced breast cancer. These trials include Impassion, which looked at the um, use of immunotherapy with chemotherapy and showed benefit. Another was the Olympiad trial, which looked at a lap rib for BRCA-positive patients. And then there were a series of trials, Mona Lisa and Paloma, that, used, that looked at the use of CDKIs, which are the drugs like abimacyclob, palbocyclob, and ribocyclob, um, to further improve um, uh, uh, cancer treatment for metastatic disease. So I've talked about the results of several important trials recently, and I'm going to shift my attention to some updates on clinical trials that are ongoing. I would encourage you all to take a look at NCI clinical trials, to look on the websites of your major cancer centers nearby your homes, and look at social media platforms as well. I just want to highlight some national trials. Um, that might be more available widely um, to let you know about some things that are going on. We know that lifestyle is really important for breast cancer, and there's a trial called Be Well, which is a two-year phone weight loss program to try to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. There's another one called ABC, which is looking at aspirin. There is another um, called POSITIVE, which is uh, a trial looking 
at holding hormone therapy after two years to allow for pregnancy. And we're trying to understand better um, what the result of doing that is for women so that we can give you all better information about fertility. We also are thinking about bringing medications that we use for advanced disease into an earlier stage setting, such as using CDKIs or PARP inhibitors in earlier stage disease. And then we always have studies going on looking at residual risk, and there's a national trial right now looking at immunotherapy for residual triple negative breast cancer after preoperative chemotherapy. So that was a whirlwind tour of how we think about breast cancer of all subtypes and stages. It wasn't meant to be exhaustive, but really to give a bit of a roadmap or structure for you to best consider your journey. I look forward to any questions later, and we'll try to answer them to the best of my ability. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Young. That was really very comprehensive, really excellent. Thank you so much, and I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Catherine Ruddy. Dr. Ruddy is a consultant, associate professor of oncology, director of cancer survivorship, Department of Oncology, Mayo Clinic, College of Medicine, Mayo Clinic. Dr. Ruddy is going to be addressing questions to ask your healthcare team, managing side effects, discomfort, and pain, asking your healthcare team about long-term side effects of treatment and how to manage them, and the role of supportive care plans. It's really now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ruddy. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of this excellent call. I'll start by saying that, of course, at the time of diagnosis, it's very important to discuss the expected side effects of your planned treatments, as well as what other specialists you might benefit from seeing, such as a genetic counselor to discuss the genetic testing that Dr. Henry reviewed earlier, a reproductive endocrinologist to help with fertility preservation, a gynecologist to discuss options for contraception during cancer treatment, or a psychologist or social worker to help with coping strategies and emotional health. Dr. Bober will be discussing reproductive concerns, sexual health, and body image concerns later in this call, so I'm going to focus my remarks on some of the other issues that may be important to you in this setting, including bone thinning and hot flashes. We now have, we know that young women tend to get more aggressive cancer therapies than older women for a variety of reasons, including that young women just tend to have fewer medical problems that can interfere with cancer treatment. Um, and so side effect management really is particularly key in young patients. Thankfully, we now have great medications to minimize nausea that would otherwise occur with chemotherapy to reduce hot flashes due to anti-estrogen treatments, and to reduce pain after surgery. Please do talk with your oncology care team about strategies for reducing side effects before and during your cancer treatment. And if the initial approach that you embark on isn't adequate, your oncologist really does want to know that in order to make changes to make, help you feel better. Some of the late and long-term effects of breast cancer treatments can include things like swelling of the arm or hand, which we call lymphedema, heart damage um, if you've received certain types of chemotherapy, nerve damage due to other types of chemotherapy, which can um, turn up uh, as numbness or tingling of the hands and feet. Aching and stiffness in the joints can happen related to anti-estrogen treatments. And early menopause can occur, contributing to sexual problems, infertility, and bone thinning. As Dr. Young described, two recent pivotal studies of anti-estrogen therapy in young breast cancer survivors, the soft and text trials, 
showed that putting the ovaries to sleep with a gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist injection reduces risk of recurrence of hormonally sensitive cancers, but also increases the chance of bothersome hot flashes, vaginal dryness, muscle and joint pain, and bone thinning. So it's important that we address these issues and that you talk with your oncology care provider about what you can do medically or lifestyle-wise to feel as good as you can over the long term. Sometimes this includes weight loss, stopping smoking, or using a medication like an antidepressant to reduce hot flashes. We also know that mind-body techniques like hypnosis, mindfulness meditation, and acupuncture are all promising therapies for hot flashes. It's, I want to note that there are a lot of products on the market that claim to help with certain side effects of treatment but may not actually help. And in fact, studies have shown that some of these um, some of these products actually might interfere with other medications, so you should definitely ask your oncologist before you start taking any herbal remedies. And in order to maintain bone health, you should make sure you're getting enough vitamin D and calcium in your diet. I usually recommend 800 international units daily of vitamin D and 1,200 milligrams daily of calcium. I mean, if you're not getting that much in your diet, you should talk to your oncologist about whether a supplement would be recommended. Weight-bearing exercise also helps maintain bone strength, and you should talk to your healthcare team about whether a bone strengthener like zoledronic acid might help you and whether or not your bone density should be tested using a DEXA scan. Turning finally to survivorship care plans, these are documents that the oncology care team creates at the end of active treatment, meaning after you're done with your surgeries and if you need radiation, if you need chemotherapy, after all of that is finished and you're going on to either take anti-estrogen treatment or not, this document would ex explains to a cancer survivor and to primary care providers what happened at the time of diagnosis, what types of treatment were given, and then what to expect going forward. So it should include the names and contact information of the members of the care team, a list of the treatments received, what needs to be done in follow-up like mammograms and how often office visits should occur, symptoms to watch for, and wellness recommendations. I would summarize by saying that it's important to keep lines of communication open with your oncology care team regarding management both of the early side effects and late side effects of cancer treatment including pain, nausea, hot flashes, and bone thinning. And survivorship care plans are one way that oncologists summarize the care that has been provided and communicate recommendations for future care. With that, I'll stop, and I look forward to taking questions later in the call. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Buddy. That was really um, excellent, and uh, thank you so much. That was really um, exceptional. Thank you. Um, and um, our next speaker um, is... Uh, is Dr. Sharon Bober. Dr. Bober is Senior Psychologist, Founder and Director of Sexual Health Program, Department of Psychological Oncology and Palliative Care, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Psychology in the Department of Psychiatry, Harvard Medical School. Uh, Dr. Bober is going to address quality of life and sexual health concerns, managing changes in body image, fertility and reproductive health during and after cancer treatment, and practical and emotional coping tips. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bober. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you all this afternoon. Um, I wanted to say that uh, it is very common for women to report symptoms of distress and anxiety in the context of, of diagnosis and treatment. But the good news is that we know that for the majority of women, uh, general quality of life uh, returns to baseline. Um, however, um, much of what I want to focus on today has to do with the very specific side effects related to sexual health and vaginal health that typically do not get addressed. Um, and often Often are not even measured on standardized um, quality of life assessments. Um, so in particular, um, I think it, it is very important for women to be aware of the range of common side effects related to both vaginal health and sexual health. Um, I want to clarify that um, although sexual health and vaginal health are related, they are not the same thing, um, and that this is um, as relevant for women um, who are partnered, who are not partnered, who are um, younger or older, or who are sexually active or not, and that it really is a, is, you know, it is an important quality of life issue. Um, so thinking about sexuality and body image, um, to clarify, it really is at the intersection of um, physical and emotional and uh, sort of relationship components. In that sense, it really is sort of in the, the middle of multiple um, dynamics. And that when we think in particular starting sort of how to get started, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, the majority of younger women who go through breast cancer treatment, um, sort of more than 50% report some changes around sexual health after, uh, after treatment. Um, typically, the changes that we're looking at um, often have to do with um, estrogen depletion, whether that is shorter term or longer term, and that unlike other side effects of treatment, um, sexual side effects do not self-resolve. Uh, this is important because for many women, the idea that um, sexual problems persist and, and worsen over time if they're not addressed is something that often women don't know. Um, and the good news is that we are really able to manage many of these side effects, but we do have to take a, an active role in doing that. Um, it's important to often think about kind of where to start and what our goals are. Um, I will also say that often um, people ask me sort of uh, what's normal, and I want to clarify that the goal is not to, to reach some kind of um, cultural norm as much as to acknowledge that if something is changed or different in terms of function that is bothersome or distressing, um, then that aspect of life really deserves attention. So I think that's really the place to start, which is to sort of acknowledge if there is anything that is bothersome or distressing, um, sort of to sort of take time and focus on what that is. Um, specifically, I want to uh, clarify that any type of treatment that um, results in estrogen depletion, whether that's estrogen suppression treatment, hormone therapy, um, chemotherapy-induced menopause, again, shorter term or longer term, um, it is expected that we will see um, changes in vaginal health. Um, that means that we typically see um, sort of less blood flow, uh, less moisture, loss of elasticity to uh, vaginal tissue, um, and typically that may result in discomfort or pain with sexual activity. Activity that may result in discomfort or pain um, without sexual activity. Um, we may see uh, urinary changes, again, very commonly connected to loss of estrogen. Um, and what women often don't realize is that these changes um, are connected to loss of estrogen and that we are really able to manage those side effects by replacing moisture, helping women regain elasticity to vaginal tissue, um, to replace um, not just blood 
blood blood flow by being able to sort of uh, take behavioral uh, kind of interventions, such as potentially adding you know greater stimulation to that tissue. Women can learn to uh, sort of variety variety of exercises, for example, to address pelvic floor health. But that most of these symptoms kind of work together um, to uh, to really sort of as part of a syndrome around estrogen depletion. Um, so in general, the point I want to make is that um, if a woman is noticing any of these kinds of changes and not aware that they are related to estrogen depletion, um, just know that although the answer does not, necessi- does not necessarily mean replacing estrogen, we are really all able to sort of supplement by finding other ways to address loss of moisture and loss of uh, blood flow, it's stretch. Um, And that's important, I think, again, not just about um, sexual function, um, but that's also about keeping your vagina healthy in the same way that we think about, for example, bone health or cardiac health um, over time. Also want to point out that it is not uncommon for women to um, have experiences where there are basic changes around body image and self-esteem. Sometimes the changes are very obvious related to um, alterations, for example, around um, mastectomy or surgery. Sometimes the changes are less obvious. Um, Women have loss of sensation. Um, Often these changes are hard to talk about. It's not something that may be obvious to a partner in terms of how to communicate. Um, And I just want to say that it is critically important for women to be able to, one, not just talk about this with the partner, but to recognize that we have a way, a sort of a roadmap forward um, in terms of uh, sort of supportive care and psychological care to help women really expand the repertoire of feeling comfortable in their body, to learn new um, strategies for how to sort of be in your body and not feel panicky, to be able to focus on um, expanding and broadening what is pleasurable, even though pleasure may be different than it used to be or changes or alterations may be permanent. Um, And that the price that you pay for survivorship does not have to be um, loss of intimacy and sexual health. And that um, because we live in a culture and a a larger society that often doesn't talk about this, um, I think people often or women often um, mistakenly get the message that if we don't talk about it, it's because um, these are symptoms or side effects that can't be addressed or can't be fixed. Um, And that is really unfortunate because it's not true. Um, So I want to also acknowledge beyond um, changes in sexuality and intimacy, it is very common for women to have um, distress, anxiety um, around um, general worries, worries around risk of recurrence, worries about how to um, talk with partners about um, how, again, you might feel differently around your body, around self-esteem. And I want to really underscore that there are resources both um, sort of in person potentially with a social worker, with a psychologist on one's team, but also now virtually. Um, There is uh, thinking about Young Survivor Coalition and, you know, other social media platforms which offer, uh, like this telephone call, a way for people to connect um, not just to professional information but to other women and to really sort of share experience and expand um, kind of strategies for coping. Um, It is also important to know um, that these are not unexpected changes. Um, So I think that the goal, again, 
thinking about what does it mean to reach a new norm? What does it really mean to expand one's experience of oneself as a sexual person, as an intimate person, um, when things are different? Um, maybe acknowledging loss maybe, may include acknowledging grief um, and integrating that into one's experience of, of moving forward. Um, so I happy to take questions as we move on, but to say that um, it's a pleasure to be here with you all today and um, happy to take questions if you have any. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Barber. That was really outstanding, and thank you. Um, and good to have you on the call. I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is uh, Stacey Lewis, and Stacey Lewis is Chief Program Officer, Young Survival Coalition, and she is our collaborating group, a, a partner group on this program today. And it's really my pleasure to introduce um, um, Ms. Lewis will be addressing the Free Young Survival Coalition Community Programs and describing their website and their, um, their um, helpline number as well. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to um, Ms. Lewis. Good afternoon, and thank you so very much, Dr. Carolyn Messner and the entire cancer care team for focusing this workshop on young women and breast cancer and for consistently including YSC as a partner organization. It's been our pleasure to work with Cancer Care, and we look forward to uh, creating many more things uh, together. It's also my pleasure to share this audio stage with these artful doctors uh, that have presented so well, and YSC looks forward to working with each of them to make a difference in the lives of this community. Young Survival Coalition was created over 20 years ago by three young survivors who experienced the unmet needs of this population. Today, YSC is the oldest and largest organization focused on the young adult oncology population, uh, including those diagnosed with breast cancer under the age or before the age of 40. We are committed to a world where no young adult faces breast cancer alone. I'll take a minute to provide a brief overview of education and support services that YSC offers, uh, and you can learn more about all of them at youngsurvival.org. We offer an abundance of educational resources, which include print and online navigators, informative videos, and robust content on our website, which addresses many of the challenges that were raised by today's great speakers. There are many opportunities for young survivors and co-survivors to connect, uh, including our face-to-face -face program, uh, where there are over 150 networks across the country, our SurvivorLink program, which is one-on-one -on -one, uh, matching, our online video support groups for different uh, groups in our population, including the newly diagnosed, those post-treatment, and those living with metastatic breast cancer as well as we have some dedicated Facebook groups uh, for young survivors, co-survivors, and those living with metastatic breast cancer. We offer robust programs focused on the metastatic breast cancer community and initiatives to train and engage young adults in breast cancer research and advocacy. We have a growing number of programs designed to serve our co-survivor community, which that's how we refer to them, uh, which is the spouses, partners, friends, family, and offspring. Lastly, I'd like to take just a moment to highlight our in-person programming, which includes our flagship three-day national summit, which will be held this year, March 8th through the 10th in Austin, Texas. This is an invitation to all young adults impacted by a breast cancer diagnosis and their co-survivors to register and attend. There's a unique half-day pre-conference workshop 
offering CEUs to nurses and social workers, a half-day workshop for those living with metastatic breast cancer, a track for co-survivors and young women with metastatic breast cancer throughout the weekend, over 20 workshops, expert speakers, and, of course, a great dance party on Saturday evening, Austin style. To learn more about the summit, uh, please visit summit.youngsurvival.org. And to learn more about all of YSC's services and events, please visit youngsurvival.org. Again, I express uh, on behalf of Young Survival Coalition heartfelt thanks to Carolyn, uh, to those at Cancer Care, and to all of you for joining today's call. Oh, thank you so much, Stacey. That was wonderful and uh, just a wonderful resource for everyone on the call. If you don't know of the Young Survival Coalition, you now know more about it, and, um, and many of you, I think, are familiar with it as well. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Mary Rose Mangelli. Ms. Mangelli is Women's Cancer's Program Coordinator at Cancer Care, and Ms. Mangelli will be describing Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and our Hopeline and our website as well. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Mangelli. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. I'm very happy to be a part of this program today. And as Dr. Mesner mentioned, I'm the Women's Cancers Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care. And today we have been talking about uh, young women and breast cancer. And I'd like to talk about how cancer care can be a part of your network. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, in-person face-to-face counseling to those in the New York and New Jersey areas, as well as telephone counseling. We offer support groups, which we also provide in-person in the New York and New Jersey areas, over the telephone and online, both nationally and internationally. Cancer Care also provides educational programs, practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, and some limited financial assistance. All our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects the person as well as his or her family and friends. Our social workers are also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact. Adjusting and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all areas I just mentioned is an important part of the process. As you may know, cancer affects the whole person and their entire family, and asking for help as a patient, caregiver, or loved one by joining a support group or by contact, uh, contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group is a way to connect with others going through a similar situation or experiencing similar problems. Individual counseling provides a safe space that is solely yours to voice concerns and navigate any issues that were mentioned earlier. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer and their loved ones experience. Feeling well emotionally can help you better cope with the diagnosis and treatment. If you are interested in any of Cancer Care services, please call our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. 
Our website is very comprehensive, and you can find a lot of information not only on support, but on our, all of our programs, as well as on your cancer diagnosis, treatment, and ways of coping as you go through this journey. Online, you can register for upcoming workshops and online support groups. We have learned a lot from today's program, and there is a lot of information to digest. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. Should you have any questions about today's program or about our other services, please do not hesitate to contact us. Lastly, please remember you're not alone. Cancer Care Services are here to help you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak, and I'd like to turn this over back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Mangelli. That was really excellent. Thank you. And um, so now we do have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Crystal to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your question at the very end, I'll explain to all of you how to get your questions answered. So but let's see how many we can take right now. So, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered, and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Yes, thank you so much, Caroline Messer. This is also a very excellent seminar. I thank you. Um, I'm a 12-year breast cancer survivor, double negative, and HER2 positive. But I have two questions on peripheral neuropathy and lymphedema. Uh, peripheral neuropathy, is there any clinical trials not right now being done for acupuncture for the peripheral neuropathy? Is there also there a cream being used for the numbness and aching in the hands? But if you have lymphedema at the same time, it's a problem. Is there also being any done now clinical trials for lymphedema, and I know there is a pump, and I know it can only be used, I was told, on swollen, on my arm is not swollen, it's just very heavy. So is it possible that these pumps also, I thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you, Stephanie, for that question. Um, Dr. Ruddy, can you address these questions in a general way? Um, I'm sorry. Um, Carol, maybe someone else could address this right now. Just Okay, sure. Absolutely, of course. Um, so, uh, Dr. Henry, could you address the questions of both um, the, uh, I think, the, um, the peripheral neuropathy <laughs> and also the, um, the um, lymphedema? Yes. Yeah, so regarding, regarding peripheral neuropathy, um, I believe there are some studies going on around the country that are relatively small looking at acupuncture for peripheral neuropathy as well as other interventions for peripheral neuropathy. So um, looking up on clinicaltrials.gov may help find one that's in your area because obviously you have to live near the clinic in order to participate in the trial. In terms of lymphedema, I realize it is a big problem. Um, there aren't any really good solutions out there for lymphedema. And to my knowledge, uh, the pumps are generally only approved in women who do have swollen arm and meet specific criteria, and that's partially insurance dependent. So I would definitely talk with your treating provider about uh, whether or not that is an option for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and um, we have um, a question from one of our um, online participants. Um, and this question is, um, can you discuss pros and cons of reconstruction with implants before versus after radiate react before after it looks like radiation i have I have over the muscle tissue expanders currently and have heard 
different options. Um, so, uh, Dr. Young, could you address that question? Let me just repeat it to be sure that it's clear. Dr. Young, um, can you discuss pros and cons of reconstruction with implants before versus after radiation? Um, I have over-the-muscle tissue expanders currently and have heard differing opinions. So yeah, um, yeah I, I will try to the best of my ability. As a medical oncologist, we work with our colleagues in plastic surgery and surgery, um, but I always rely on them for their expertise. Um, the, what I would say is that the concern about using implant reconstruction at um, after re radiation or prior to radiation is that you will have contracture of the um, implant and that you might actually lose the implant or have a less than optimal um, cosmetic outcome from this. Um, I would say that generally most conservative plastic surgeons tend to do the radiation and then reconstruction later. Um, and there are certain circumstances in which case that is absolutely necessary to do. Um, but again, this is a very complicated situation, and I would encourage co ongoing conversations with plastic surgery. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, we have another telephone question. Um, Crystal? Thank you. Our next question comes from Lynn S. Your line is open. Thank you. As a long-term early diagnosed breast cancer survivor who has married daughters with babies and so forth, I read an abstract recently that concerned me, and I was hoping you might be able to respond to it. There was a study coming out of the University of North Carolina stating that there is a higher risk of breast cancer for women after childbirth, uh, indicating that for the first five years after a woman has a baby, she is at higher risk. The benefit of having children is not really derived until 20 years later. Would love to have your input and recommendations for follow-up in young women as they have babies, what should be done in terms of OBGYN follow-up for the possibility of breast cancer early in life. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Lynn, for that question. Um, Dr. Ruddy, are you able to address that question? Yes, certainly. Yeah. It, it, that study confirmed what we've seen from prior studies, and we have known for quite a while that there is an increased risk of breast cancer in the, in the years following a pregnancy. Over a lifespan, having a pregnancy, at least at a young age, does protect against lifetime risk of breast cancer, but there is a somewhat increased risk over both during pregnancy and over the few years afterwards, unless the pregnancy is at a very young age. Now, most women don't make their childbearing decisions based on risk of breast cancer, and the risk is not so high that it really changes what we recommend in terms of mammograms or um, breast uh, exam frequency. Of course, all young women should know their breast tissue, and if they notice an abnormality, whether it's after a pregnancy or not, need to have that assessed by a clinician. But um, this, these data from this abstract really um, are in line with what we've seen from other studies, including the Nurses' Health Study, that yes, there is an increase <coughs> over a few years after breast cancer, and it probably is related to uh, excuse me, after the few years after pregnancy, there's an increased breast cancer risk, probably related to some of the hormonal changes as well as the breast changes of pregnancy. But over the lifespan, at least if the pregnancy is at a relatively young age, pregnancy is protective. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks. I hope that's helpful. Um, 
and a question for Dr. Bober, one of our online participants. Um, I work at a cancer center in central Oregon. I see a need for our survivors to have more resources and education about sexual health during after treatment. Unfortunately, in our smaller community, we don't, um, we don't have a specialist in this area. What resources for education do you recommend that we could access on the web so we can implement something in our survivorship program. Also, are you aware of our, any educational opportunities for ancillary providers? Uh, like yeah, absolutely. That? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, so there is actually really now more than there ever has been in terms of um, possibilities. First of all, the, the latter part in terms of training. Um, there's a. a an, uh, a wonderful organization called the Scientific Network on Female Sexual Health and Cancer. Um, this is a multidisciplinary um, organization of providers who are all working in this space and have a yearly meeting. Um, last year, we actually had our first CME course for ancillary providers who are um, working in this domain, um, and uh, there will be also another CME course. Um, uh, this coming uh, November 2019, um, exactly uh, in this area. So um, that would be. I would encourage uh, you to look uh, into the scientific network on female sexual health and cancer. Um, also, directly regarding resources for patients, um, both uh, Young Survivor Coalition, um, certainly American Cancer Society, and the NCI have um, really excellent resources that are um, for patients and survivors that. Uh, address sexual health and intimacy. Um, there is, uh, you know, Leslie Shover, who's a, really a sort of the pioneer um, in uh, oncosexuality, um, has a uh, a new endeavor called uh, Will to Love, which is an online platform um, providing services in which um, community providers um, and um, community centers can actually contract with Will to Love. Uh, in order to um, provide services uh, directly to patients. So, you know, there there are definitely more resources now than ever. Um, I would also say certainly in the Northwest, the survivorship program through um, uh, through uh, WashU um, at the Hutch um, actually has um, some excellent services around um, sexuality um, after cancer, including uh, the SHINE program. Um, so that might be something that's at least more regional um, what, that you could um, connect with. And uh, Karen Sorelia is the head of that program. So I, you know, there, are, there, there now are, I think, a growing number of resources available. Excellent. And at the end of the program, we're all going to get an evaluation. And the evaluation will also include all the resources that have been mentioned today. And I'm going to actually um, email with Dr. Bover, so I'll be sure we'll give you all the proper links to all of these things that you can then access them. So it's a great question, great. and it's great sure. for all the participants as well. So um, we want to really get you more. The more information, the better um, for everybody. Um, and... Um, so we have a question um, from one of our participants about what, what do you recommend for hot flashes? Dr. Ruddy, is that something you could address? Yeah. So some of the easiest strategies for hot flashes are lifestyle uh, modifications. Those are not always adequate. Things like dressing in layers and keeping the bedroom cool because hot flashes are sometimes most bothersome at night. Um, not using things like flannel sheets, obviously have light, light bedding and um, and then during the day, having a fan available. If those 
types of strategies are not adequate, we often turn to medications and antidepressants, including venlafaxine, which, for which the other name is Effexor, and citalopram, for which the other name is Celexa, have been shown to be effective therapies. Uh, there are there was recent data that one of my colleagues just presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium that oxybutynin may also play a role here for management, and then integrate as I mentioned integrative medicine techniques, mindfulness, meditation, hypnosis, and acupuncture all also may be of value. So there are a lot of strategies to try, and I think. For, for different people, different, uh, different approaches are more appealing, um, but I would certainly encourage you to discuss with, with your clinician what might be helpful for you. Um, Dr. Mesdron, I also want to just jump in to say that um, there's actually a growing uh, sort of uh, evidence that um, building on that bit, that behavioral piece Dr. Reddy just mentioned, um, paced respiration um, is an important strategy that has been, uh, that really has been shown to sort of reduce severity and duration of hot flashes. So um, I think finding somebody who can do work um, using this sort of mindfulness-based modalities specifically around hot flashes um, is important. And it's called, um, the name of it again was? Sorry, uh, paced respiration. Oh, sorry, P-A-C-E-D, respiration, sort of using breathing techniques uh, in order to um, sort of you know, you know, address uh, severity and duration of hot flashes. Thank you. So there are uh, new modalities out there that really um, we've not mentioned before, so thank you. And, and you will get this in the evaluation. Uh, we will get the correct links for all of you to, ha to have this. Um, and I guess one last question, and this one for Dr. Henry. Um, so I um, I have stage three grade two mucinous carcinoma with micropapillary patterns. I am 31 years old, now out of surgery, looking for hormonal treatment options. Can you elaborate on which option is better choice, tamoxifen versus aromatase inhibitors? And I guess and if it, this will be a general answer, of course, general question about tamoxifen versus aromatase inhibitors. If you could just comment on that. I think that might be helpful to many of our participants. Yeah, sure. I think this has been an area that's been much debated uh, recently because of all the new data that we have on how best to treat younger women with breast cancer. And I know earlier on the call it was mentioned, the data from the text and the soft trials. And so this is really an opportunity for you to speak with your oncologist about the pros and the cons in your particular setting. You know, we certainly take age into consideration, but we also take into consideration the type the type of breast cancer, the meaning the histology. We take into consideration the estrogen status, the HER2 status, um, and other family history or um, other medical conditions that an individual patient may have when making the decision. And so it's not as simple as saying that there's one answer that's better than the other, but really it's important to have a conversation with your oncologist about the pros and cons of the two different types of treatment. Obviously, for someone who's young, if you're 31, if you are planning to have more children, you may make one decision versus if you are not. Similarly, if um, you know, there's implications for becoming postmenopausal at a very young age, you can increase your risk in the future of bone disease and potentially some other uh, medical conditions. So it's really important to have a discussion about where you are in terms of your childbearing status, where you are in terms of uh, other medical illnesses, and to have an individualized discussion. 
And although that was the last question, there were more, and then that's it. That was the last question. This question about uh, Mary Rose about financial assistance programs or grants that would be available to breast cancer patients who do not need chemo. She only needs radiation and tamoxifen after my double mastectomy. Um, mm-hmm. Could you just comment on just financial assistance programs in general? And there are lots of them out there. So. Absolutely. Um, the type of financial assistance that we have here at Cancer Care um, is for like transportation costs to and from your doctor's appointments, especially with radiation since you go every day, um, five, five days a week for 35 weeks. Uh, for 35 sessions, uh, so like for like six weeks, um, and that can reduce the cost um, of your transportation. It can also help with parking. The other thing that it can help with is home care or child care if you have a young child that needs caregiving. Um, in regards to um, copayment assistance, occasionally we we do have some open funding for copayment assistance for medications. Um, I would just recommend that you contact us to see if we do have an, op- an open fund. Otherwise, we can provide you with other resources. Um, and if you have any other questions, I really encourage you to contact us on our Hope Line. And again, the number is 800-813-4673. Well, thank you. And I want to thank our speakers. You've really been extraordinary. And um, this has been an extraordinary call, I have to say, uh, really um, and um, so I want to thank our speakers, um, the wonderful, wonderful group of speakers. This is fantastic. Um, and um, also all of our participants, you've asked such really great questions, which really also helps to enhance the call and allow our speakers to address further concerns that you may have. So um, as we wrap up this program, I want to remind all of you that there are a lot of resources out there for you. When you get your evaluation, you'll be getting all the resources that were mentioned during the program. We may add some others that, you know, that we are aware of as well, but there are some really important ones mentioned during the program. We'll be sure to get all of those to you. Um, in addition, um, Cancer Care Per Se offers a host of services. I think Mary Rose went over those services. You can access Cancer Care Services at 1-800-813-4673, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, most importantly, I do not want anyone to leave this program feeling that you are alone, that there is no help for you, that you and what should you do. Um, we want you to know that you're now part of this community of support. There are not only is there cancer care out there, there's a survivor coalition, and there are many other organizations, many, many breast cancer organizations that are available um, to provide uh, help and service to you. Also, um, we do, uh, we've just pioneered a, a meditation app, which many people are using. It's on our website. And indeed, it's, um, it's free, and it's actually many people find it. Again, it offers relaxation techniques, and many people find that very helpful and useful as well. Um, but most importantly, um, when you're feeling like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Who's out there for me? First of all, you do have your healthcare team. And so even those who've asked questions on the call today, take your questions and go back to your healthcare team with them. Also, of course, um, any questions you have, ask your healthcare team, including financial questions, because sometimes within your institution, there may be resources that you just don't know about, that there are a whole group of people, financial specialists, social workers, patient navigators, who could perhaps help you as well. Um, so there's lots of help out there, and, um, and most of your oncologists, most of your physicians are open to hearing what your concerns are to get you the help that you need. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, you've been a great group. This is the start of 2019. Indeed, this is our first program in 2019. There are many, many more coming, 
coming forth. And actually, we have many, many more breast cancer programs, so you'll all be hearing about them um, um, going forward. And uh, again, thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.